to Chalk Talk, a new podcast of real talk for real educators. I'm Kay. And I'm Steph. Welcome back. Welcome yeah. back. We we are cruising right along. We are getting close to the double digit mark here. No, this is lucky number seven. I know, I know. And it feels like we, I don't know, there's something really right with the universe because we put out we put out a request and we've got people accepting the challenge. So if you have an idea or a topic and you would like to join us, we would love to lift your story up and celebrate and inspire others. Yes, absolutely. So today with our um, updates and our housekeeping, it is spring, oh, glorious spring. With spring come allergies and testing. <laughs> Both lovely topics. Yeah. And the green and the growing okay. and all of that good stuff. But yeah, it is, it is testing season. And I, I just want to put a, just a, like, we're thinking about you kind of um, warm, fuzzy out there. How's it going? Um, any surprising results? You know, we go year, year to year and we look at our data and this year, you know, like none other, uh, what is what is your data telling you this year? And what can you decipher from that data? And and I don't know. We hear we hear the term learning slide a lot, mm-hmm. and I'm a big proponent that you know the students are learning, kids are learning, teachers are learning, administrators and leaders are learning, and parents are learning. We're all learning. I don't know. Is it a myth or is it a mystery? <laughs> I, you know, like, and there has been a lot of stuff on, you know, Twitter recently and just like this whole idea, we need to stop saying learning loss. Yeah. Um, just because if, and, and the way we come have kids not learned everything that maybe we hope they will learn, probably not, but guess what? On a, I'm going to sarcastic finger quotes, normal year, they might not either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the important thing is, and this was actually a Diane Ravitch uh, article today, and I didn't read the whole thing, but basically she was talking about, you know, the way we think about this next year, like we can't just assume there's learning loss. If we come at that, then we're going to come from a, a um, deficit, deficit model. Thank you. Thank yes, you. I read your mind. Yes. Deficit thinking. And we really need to just, you know, come in like this is, you know, last year was normal. We know we're going to have some remediation like we always have. Mm-hmm. And just how we come at next year is going to be really important for that idea of learning loss or learning slide or whatever the term is we want to use. So exactly. yeah, I, I wish we'd, you know, it's kind of like that pet peeve of, we talked about of my like schools are going to reopen. They've been open my friends, but this is yeah. another one like learning loss. Well, right. Like I think said, it's gonna, maybe our data will tell us that identifying some gaps that maybe in the back of our heads we knew because let's face it, teachers know their kids. Mm-hmm. And so it might affirm some of those gaps that we thought might be out there. But also we've been learning. Yes. So, so I guess the definition of what is learning loss and how, right. do we, how do we, uh, approach it? We know that the feds are throwing all kinds of money at learning loss. <laughs> so what is, I guess it's up to our listeners, up to our challenge or a uh, challenge to our listeners and the leaders in our districts. What is learning loss and how will we 
thoughtfully and purposefully address it. Yeah. And I would say too, the other thing that like with learning loss, but a little bit they're connected is we now have amplified inequities that were always there. So what are we going to do with those? Like those kids were always the ones who were um, not always, but struggling because of lack of, you know, exposure, experience, opportunity, whatever we want to call it. And now we, we can't, I mean, we shouldn't have ignored it before, but now it's really, really hard to ignore it because it's been Mm -hmm. amplified. And so how will we address some of those things along with all of the other stuff that's going on too? So. Absolutely. I think the COVID has been a real eye opener in all aspects. (laughs) I agree. Whether it's education or, or our own lives, it's been a real eye opener, like smack in the head eye opener. Yep. Which, you know, sometimes we need that, right? Sometimes. Maybe not for a whole 18 months, but we need that. Correct. And <laughs> now, hopefully now we can, you know, use it as an opportunity, a learning opportunity to, you know, move forward mm-hmm. and really um, hone in on what it is that, you know, what do we want to do for mm-hmm. our, our students and our teachers? So kind of exciting. Yeah. I like that kind of thinking. Me too. So let's talk about something really depressing. Ew. Yeah, I know. Um, so I was watching the news the other day and I, they were talking about this new summary of a U.S. Secret Service Safe School Initiative report on preventing school shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I was again, I only watched the snippet on the news before I looked at the, the whole report, which actually isn't terribly long. It's actually pretty easy to consume. Um, I mean, the summary that they have on here, but you know, okay, so study implications, here are the big things that they kind of found. What we know is how they've kind of titled this. Attackers talk about their plans, mm-hmm. okay? And I think, you know, again, attackers make plans. Um, there is no stereotype or profile. So they couldn't find any sort of similarities between socioeconomic, race, any of that. It was all age, it was all very varied. Right. Um, attackers had easy access to guns. Uh, whether that be in the home or they found them somewhere, but they could easily get them. Um, School staff are often first responders. This was the one that I thought was probably obviously for us as educators, the most um, uh, prevalent maybe, because then the little sub subsection under that says, most shooting incidents were not resolved by law enforcement intervention. More than half of the attacks ended before law enforcement responded to the scene. And basically they were ended by some sort of school staff. Um, and I just think, I mean, that's, that's more, more than half. That's a lot. Mm. Um, attackers are encouraged by others. So typically it's not one person that's maybe one person doing the planning, but they're sharing and then getting encouragement and then bullying can be a factor. Um, and warning signs are common. So most attackers engaged in some behavior prior to the incident that caused concern or indicated a need for help. And I, I think to myself, right, like, really, we needed a report to tell us this? Like, I, you know, as an educator being in a school, and I have never, ever been part of a school shooting, even as far as I know, even close to one. Um, right. But as you, you know, you can see those kids who are struggling, you can see those kids who may have some violent tendencies. And I don't know, I just sometimes I and mental health. And we've talked about this before, you know, in the, in our podcast, but we know mental health is an issue with students. And now we have, you know, kind of written down from the, who did I say did this U S secret service 
mm-hmm. um, like this hopefully will be a beginning or a conversation to kind of what are we going to do for mental health forever for our adolescents, even younger than adolescents. Some of these kids were as young as seven, right. so, you know, moving into, so we can, cause we can have all the arguments all day about gun control, but what are we going to do about the issue of mental health and how that can then lead to some violent acts? Absolutely. It's a sobering report for it sure. Is. It does give, it highlights, you know, some of the, some of the talking points that maybe we can in our schools address. Mm-hmm. It gives us some things to t- really hone in on and target for sure. Cause no one wants to see it. I too have never experienced it. Um, thankfully, um, sadly our younger generations will probably have more experience with mm-hmm. this than, than you or I will. Mm-hmm. And, and what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. What do we do about it? So those are our fun and exciting updates. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have, we'll have better, better things coming up here as we get into uh, this week's topic and our guest about engaging and motivating students, which could be part and parcel yep. with preventing some um, serious mental health avenues. But um, yeah, we're going to talk to a friend named Mike, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about video game creation and community-based learning. Awesome. All right. So as schools are continuing to regain some sense of normalcy uh, following all of this pandemic that we've been trudging through in the last year or so, we've been hearing a lot about the terms student engagement and community connections and you know the list goes on and on and it and it brings up today's topic and that is you know student student engagement learner agency motivating kids and all of that being done through the lens of video game creation and some community based learning and today we are so fortunate to have Mike Scoville with us and to tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike, and how, like, where, where do you teach? Whom do you teach? And, uh, and how did you get into video game creation? And then we'll go on with a few questions for you. Well, well, thank you for allowing me to use some of your time today. Uh, my name is Mike Scoville. I am actually finishing my 22nd year at Gibraltar area school district, which is up the Door County Peninsula at the top. Um, If it was a regular year, I would be the library media specialist for our district. Um, But right now I am actually teaching sixth grade again um, because we couldn't socially distance the desks in the classroom. So I am still doing library media stuff, but kind of behind the scenes, I'm teaching sixth graders and I'm also the technology, elementary technology go-to person. So it's a lot of stuff happening um, in one nice year. <laughs> um, how did I get started? Well, I'm kind of the person that kind of grew up when video games kind of started. Sure. So they've kind of always been in my life. But in 2016, I think it is, um, I applied for a fellowship with a group called Field Day, which is located in at UW-Madison here in Wisconsin. And Field Day actually creates video games. So I thought, well, it's kind of fun. The video game that they were looking to make was a 
history, um, doing history, um, thinking like a historian. And it happened to be the anniversary of our state capital yeah. coming up in 2017 at the time. So they wanted to have something unique um, for that anniversary. Cool, cool. So when, when you're thinking about video game creation and, you know, motivating and engaging students, you said you grew up, you know, in the, um, I won't even say which video games I'm a master at. <laughs> you can find them in an antique arcade right now. <laughs> but why, why is it such uh, a relevant topic for engaging and motivating today's students, do you think? Yeah, I think um, this pandemic has showed us one thing and one thing in particular, and that is kids that are remote have a hard time staying connected. So the kids that are still in the classroom kind of have it from two ways, um, seeing what's happening with remote students and being in the classroom face to face. So I think, um, well, basically, I've never met a student that has never played a video game. So it's something that they're kind of familiar with, and it automatically triggers kind of excitement in kind of the idea of playing a video game. Mm -hmm. um, we think back to, you know, like back when I was in school, I was excited. Our teachers always put like a little sticker on our papers when they would pass them back. And I was always like, ooh, you know, what sticker do we get this time? Um, but as we move forward, you know, now it's kind of like, what skins can you buy for your video game person or, you know, it's just one of those things that brings automatic um, student buy-in, you know, when, when you talk about some type of game. Yeah. So if we think about normal worksheets, they're not always exciting, but if you can turn it into a little bit of a game and maybe you're counting points or you're, a, you know, have a leaderboard or something in your classroom, then what you have is a little bit more of a gamification of kind of some old school type of assignments there. Yeah, for sure. So for those of us who may be, cause you just used the term gamification, who may be thinking like, okay, what exactly is that? I mean, we can make some assumptions, but you know, so what is exactly gamification? Um, and why do video game, I mean, even regular video games that we're not doing in a school setting, keep people, you know, motivated to come back and play more. So what is it about gamification that keeps us coming back, so to speak? Well, I think everybody has their own definition of what gamification is, but I think in the big umbrella term, it's kind of adding game design and elements to non-game activities. Um, you know, there's a, an older game called Zork, which I wasn't aware of until I started working with Field Day, but Zork is kind of an older game, but it's not visual. It's completely through text. And I think sometimes the reading and having their own imaginations put forth into what's happening, you know, that really can spur things when it comes to writing or reading or understanding, you know, books that they read. I'm also thinking about things like Minecraft, which, yeah, it's kind of a a video game, but you're building or you're working with people. So you're dealing with cooperation and collaboration. And, you know, sometimes it's just the whole idea of using your imagine to say, imagination to say, can, can I do this? They can't do it here in real life, but they can do it in Minecraft or in another video game that they have played. Um, even as adults, 
we think about, you know, things that we've done and there's been kind of a rise, at least in the last couple of years of breakout rooms where, you know, you lock yourself in a room and have to solve clues. And I think that's just kind of pulling at that younger version of you when you, you know, used to start with video games. Now we take, take that idea of breakout and you bring it into a classroom with breakout edu where you can totally change your curriculum not what you're teaching but how you're teaching it so that kids have more engagement in you know trying to break out using what they've learned or what they will learn um, i think it's just really really neat yeah kind of a tricky way of tricky way of connecting everything to the content right yeah um, and in a motivating and, and stimulating way for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always so fascinated. Like you can, you know, a kid who might give up or not work as hard at, I don't know, math or pick a topic. I just picked math because maybe, maybe I'm self-projecting a little, but um, you know, they would, they will sit and I'm guilty of it too. I will sit and try to pass a level of something, whatever it is they're doing until either you run out of lives or I don't know, something else occurs. But I mean, it's not the same as sitting down and trying to do something, you know, acad academic to you. And I'm using sarcastic finger quotes. I realize people can't see me on a podcast, but it's just this interesting, like you will sit for hours and hours and try to beat something, a level, but yet maybe potentially give up on or not work as hard on something else. And so it's just always been such an interesting phenomenon for me. And I'm just as guilty. I mean, I sit at night and play a stupid video game for just for hours. And I would normally give up on something like that. I don't know why I do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, last year, our fourth graders were working on Westward Expansion. And, you know, when it, when you think of Westward and expansion, you think of all the things you could do, but then right away, it, you know, the Oregon Trail pops up and it's like, okay, so they might not have ever played it, but you know, all of a sudden you're, you know, the funny part in there is you're dealing with dysentery. Well, what is that? Well, it was a real thing on the Westward expansions on these wagon trains. So it's just kind of interesting that trying to teach them and an understanding of what needs to happen you couldn't do if you were just reading out of a book mm -hmm. or working on a worksheet. So it really kind of does bring ownership, really. It brings that person into owning a part or playing a part of that, of that game. That is true. Can't oh. count the number of family members I lost crossing the river. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sure Oregon Trail is like this fancy thing. It was, you know, pixelated when I played on the green screen. <laughs> Me too. I'm really dating myself now, but the Apple IIe green screen. I think it still is. Meeting. Is it still like that? that yeah. Fun. I want to play. I want to play. I it. mean, you can play some, you know, like that's one that you can play online, you know. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of fun that. You know, when, and when kids see that, it's like, oh, and they say the same thing. Oh, it's pixelated. But then all of a sudden you start playing and it's like the pixelation disappears because they're, they're ingrained into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. yeah, that is such a great point. Wow. Well, speaking of games in, in particular, you had said that you applied for a fellowship with Field Day. It is a wonderful um, institute out of uh, our University of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, tell us a little bit more about the games you've worked on. I have had the chance to play one, uh, Joe Wilder, 
And, uh, and then I'm intrigued about this, this shipwrecks of the great lakes game. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So it's really funny because you never, when we, when we started working with them and there's, there's teachers from all over the state. It's not just me. That's part of this, but you know, we met to work on the Joe Wild, which ended up being called the Joe Wilder in the Capitol case. Um, I think when we started, it was just the Capitol game. That, that was what we were calling it. <laughs> um, but you have buy-in from across the state, different teachers, and then you're working with um, the Wisconsin you know, Historical Society and, and a lot of different places, um, Wisconsin Public or PBS Wisconsin uh, is part of that. Uh, Wisconsin Public Television came in and it we've we spent I don't even know how long but you know it was really brainstorming and and I have to give it to field day because spearheading this kind of new thing this was Joe Wilder in the Capitol case was kind of a new realm for them to work in they'd worked with math and science games before but this was really a new realm and it was designed specifically for fourth grade that was the key audience because they knew that it was part of their curriculum. And I think that's where the coolest part is, is they needed to know what fourth graders thought and what they acted like and, and who they were in order to design a game for them. And I, I give them high props because they really, they really did research both with the teachers and on their own to figure out, you know, the, the core audience here. So the first one we did was ended up being called Joe Wilder in the Capitol case. And it um, is great because it, it's making you think like a historian and it really gives you the inquiry as to answering and thinking about questions that would have been, or how can I find out? So the whole game is set up with an artifact um, and basically Joe her grandfather was the historian for the for the museum. And he's kind of on his way out. He's kind of thinking of retiring. They move him to the basement and they're bringing in this new guy who only wants to be in the news. He, he's kind of like, he doesn't care if he gets the right answers. He wants to be the guy that is known. Well, oh, Joe- wait, Does that sound for, I'm sorry. I was going to get political for a second. Okay, keep going. I'm well, sorry, and, keep going. Jo- and Joe's like, okay. And she's standing there with her grandfather and- this artifact is being described by this new guy. And he's like, this is what it is. And Joe's like, that's not what it is. So it really is you, the character, Joe, whoever the player is playing to find the real answers. And you have to talk to people and you have to look at details and you really have to kind of put some things together before you get to the end to prove um, that it is what you think it is. I think it's just, and there's certain steps that you have to take. You know, in this game, there are two artifacts that you have to prove. And the best part is when we were done with the first level and we play tested it and the kids at my school kind of had a a little bit of a leeway because we were also working with Google Forms and how Google works. So I was kind of teaching multiple things at the same time. So I was asked specific questions while we play tested, I was supposed to write things down about what I saw, what I heard. What I did was turn that into a Google form for the kids to do as they were done when they were done. So I was able to send the data along with my, you know, what I saw, but what they thought um, back to field day. And, 
you know, they tweaked and they twisted and, and we ended up with a, an award-winning game, which was really, really cool. I will just plug my school for one thing. And the fourth graders were learning about like the state animal and the state bird and all that at the, at the time. And they were really concerned that there was no badger or robin in, in the game. And then all of a sudden the, the new version comes out that we're playing and now there's a badger in it. And I, I can only think that it was due to feedback that we got from, that they got from our school. So that was pretty cool. That is cool. Listening to student, student voice, end user. That is, so, that is so cool. And everything, when you were describing it, I kept thinking, wow, though, those higher order thinking skills, you know, they really have to be critical thinkers to, to be Joe in the game and uh, proving their artifacts. So that is, it's a great game. It's a great game. Kids love it. Once they know what they're supposed to do, um, they, <laughs> it's hard to like, okay, we've been at this for an hour. Now we need to, <laughs> well, and I, and I think that was one of the key pieces when we play tested it is they had to read. Yeah. Like, I know that, I know that that's not always the case. And sometimes, and even some of the students would say to me, well, I just, I don't read it. I just play it and see, see what I can do. So with mm -hmm. this one, you really needed to read it to figure out what was going on. And that's kind of how the second one, which is, I don't know what it's going to be called, <laughs> uh, but right now it's um, shipwrecks of the Great Lakes, which again, you know, we're talking about field day kind of heading the charge with yeah. the Wisconsin Historical Society, UW-Madison, uh, UW-Sea Grant, uh, UW-Maritime, our Wisconsin Maritime Museum, uh, PBS Wisconsin, and then even DPI is in um, with this one. So it's, it's really mm -hmm. kind of cool. That is. Um, and this one is geared for third through fifth grade. So third, fourth, and fifth grade is kind of where the, the sweet spot for this game is, is being centered. Okay. Um, but it's all based on archaeology. So if you, you know, the other one, you had to ask questions. This one, you have to ask questions too. And again, this, well, I can say that we've placed, play tested a little bit. And the first level you can get from the beginning to the end, but it's like in rough draft form. So yeah. the kids are, have seen it from just complete sketches to now kind of playing a little bit of it and understanding you know, what's behind the game um, and how to create it. So from my perspective, teaching sixth grade, that's where we're kind of focusing, not so much on the game itself, but there's a lot of kids that I have that are really anxious to like create their own games. And so they're seeing it from the background of how it is. It's not just one day and you're done. Um, in fact, just before our spring break this last week, we had Sarah and Eric from the kind of the artistic department actually zoom in and ask kids about what they thought of the characters. What do they look like? You know, are they've seen what they look like, but do they like them? Do they not like them? What would they change if they had it? What's the story behind the character? So I think that's kind of cool to have them who are making the game actually take some time to make it personal for the students that are working with them. Yeah. And, and with the, um, with your involvement with all of this, and it's just awesome. And right now, um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is kind of floating around in my brain mm -hmm. as a song, but, 
are, do you know, we know that this is Wisconsin based and we have, you know, quite a few listeners that are beyond our borders. Do you know if something like field day, an entity like that exists um, beyond our borders or, or uh, does field day deal with other states? And so that, you know, our listeners out of state can maybe contact them and see how are they doing what they're doing? I, this is so interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I know that Field Day has worked with other groups, um, okay. but I don't know if out of the state, like right now they're working on a, uh, one with a science group. Hmm. And again, I think they're from Wisconsin, but it's dealing with an uh, aqua lab, um, Jane, that they're working on. Okay. Um, but to finish up with this shipwrecked one, you, yeah. you literally, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's kind of like Joe Wilder, because it's not. Um, we went in discussion a different direction. So in Joe Wilder, Joe Wilder walks around and she, she talks in this one, you are the main character, you are the shipwreck um, archeologist and everything you get comes on your phone. Cool. So you get your notifications, you get pictures mm -hmm. sent, you get documents sent. So it's really kind of gearing into students who, you know, at that time may have a phone or at least know how to use a phone. Um, and while they're trying to solve these different wrecks, like why they happened or, or what they are, there are also Easter eggs. I know this is kind of Easter week coming up here, but Easter eggs hidden in games are like secret things. So in this game, there actually are Easter eggs hidden in every level. You don't need <laughs> to find them to solve the, the level, but they are added, you know, extra things that kind of add to the story of the ships that's so cool and so the, right now there are i don't remember exactly how many levels i forgot to write it down but every level is a different um period in history so you know there's an early 1900s there's late 1800s so it's going to kind of span a lot of stuff and throughout the game there is um, a shipwreck hunter who's trying to find the big granddaddy of them all and it's kind of, I don't want to say sabotaging you, but trying to get in your way so that you aren't looking for it oh. or finding information. So, <laughs> so drama too <laughs> to the game. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it sounds it sounds really exciting. Do you know is there a target release date or a time frame for this game? Um, I don't, I, I want to guess. Well, I know that we are told that in April and May, we are supposed to be able to get kind of a final of the first level. Um, I don't know when it will be out completely, um, but I'm sh it's going to be soon. I, within, I would say la next six months. Cool. Possibly. Cool. And the other thing with the games by Field Day is they're free. So yeah. Joe Wilder is, if you have the internet, you can play it. Um, in fact, uh, Joe Wilder was picked up with Brain Pop, so it's actually in mm. Brain Pop now. You can play, um, and that's the the direction that the shipwreck one is going to. It's if you have the internet, you can play. It's not a, a pay for game. That's awesome. That is awesome. So as I was listening to you um, talk about this, how the games are set up, and the thinking that goes behind it, I've had the luxury of working with quite a few social studies teachers on the new social studies standards. 
And I know every state's in a different place with those, but I can say that every state's I've looked at are very similar and they have that component of inquiry. So are kids asking good questions? Are they researching? So as you're thinking about, you know, using these tools or just gamification in general, how would a teacher think about going about using gamification in their classroom and how do they weave in those standards and, you know, all of those types of, and I know we're kind of focused a little bit on the social studies realm today, but, you know, bigger picture, how might that look even in, in regardless of the content? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one thing to start with is just look at actually what you teach. Um, it doesn't have to be anything big. I mean, you could start with, you know, even if you had something that you always do, can you somehow add some sort of game element to it? Can you keep points for something for the unit? Or can you have a leaderboard, like who's in first place as you're, as you're working and, and earning these points? The other thing that works really well, and this, I'm gonna just do a side jump here to um, professional development for teachers too, is you know, there's a big movement in trying to collect badges and PD badges are really good too for your, your staff, like completing different tasks or passing like small quizzes or such. You know, same thing works with students. You know, it kind of goes back to the stickers idea that I was shared at the beginning is, you know, if you collect badges, they have those. They, they can look at those and say, this is what I did. Um, but I mean, you look at how do you teach something and can you just twist it a little bit can you can you make it more student-centered where they kind of have a little bit more control over what's going on not necessarily everything but you know maybe look at it and how do you start well start by doing something like playing a game you know make make a crossword puzzle make a, a word search just with those terms with the the vocab that you have that's just a different way of saying okay here's the vocab now it's our definition give it to them in a different way so that they have maybe a little bit more fun doing it um, over the last year i've seen a, a big rise in things like kahoot and quizzes and blue kit um, many of those are free that you put put some work into if you put in a little bit of work before it's not going to replace everything you do i mean i, I hope don't think that I hope you're not going to just totally wipe everything out but if you put in a little bit of work before and set up questions in Kahoot or Bluekit or quizzes um, you know it just gives them a little bit more excitement into what they're learning um, but I also think of you know teaching them some like I mentioned breakout edu give them something different mm -hmm. not necessarily the same thing um, you know, just like you would play chess or checkers or cards, you know, even a deck of cards, bringing that into some sort of a curriculum and using deck of cards and something just is something different. Um, but using gamification can help you do a lot with um, your launching point and launching it in with students and keeping them engaged. I think about um, using primary and secondary sources. You know, a lot of kids don't know what those are. I mean, even in sixth grade, we deal with that a lot and there are still kids that, that don't know. But go back to Joe Wilder. That's a prime example of using primary sources and finding out your information. Um, some of us, many of us grew up using choose your own adventure <laughs> books. Well, you can create your own choose your own adventures using Google Slides. 
simple, simple things, just kind of twist up what you're used to doing by creating your own stories. And then I just come back to Minecraft, let them use Minecraft, you know, let them be a little adventurous. They know it's a safe place for them. So they're going to try something, you know, and, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but it's, you know, it's a safe place for them to try building it. So this is an added question. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot because I, it, I thought of it while you were just talking. Have you experienced for, you know, for kids who aren't necessarily maybe competitive or, or even parents who think, you know, sometimes that competition can either is negative or whatever they might think. Have you ever run into any issues with like keeping a leaderboard or um, keeping point totals, you know, to kind of game point totals? Just is, has there ever been an issue or how do you build the culture in your room so that isn't an issue, that it is truly just um, friendly competition? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have actually, um, not this year, but in the past, uh, when I used to teach keyboarding, there was a leaderboard on the keyboarding program. And <laughs> I had a parent that didn't want to see that their kid wasn't in first place. And, and that's fine. I can turn it off. Um, but there's more than just playing by yourself. And I think that's one of the pieces that you have to come back to is in most games, you're working collaboratively or, you know, you're working as a team. And so what I've done this year specifically is I have team projects and the team projects then becomes the project of the team. It's not just one person in charge. Um, and they know that when they're done with that project, they're going to be grading the other kids in their group. How did they work as a team member? Not what they did, but how did they work as a team member? Did they help? Did they let somebody else do the work? And I think one of the things to remember too, is we have to, be able to say to kids that, okay, you're not doing it by yourself. I have, a, I have kids, I have had kids that, nope, I don't want to be part of a team. I want to do it myself. And I think one of the things to remember is that's not the way really the world works. You need other people to make success happen. And by turning around and having them work as a teammate, um, I, that's kind of where I, I sit, you know, that working as a group is important and it's, it will get you further than working by yourself. Absolutely. As we wrap up uh, the questions and thank you, Mike, for sharing all of that. Do you have any final thoughts for an educator who's thinking about incorporating or implementing gamification in in my classroom, if I'm a little bit reticent, I'm not really sure what to do. What, what kind of advice could you give me if I'm trying to tiptoe into that realm to really up my student engagement and, and motivating my kids? Um, I would say, take it one step at a time. You can't jump in and do everything at once. Try one thing and see how it works. Um, I, think, I think not trying it just automatically means you're going to fail by trying something, seeing what the kids do. They may totally say, oh, it would have been cool if we could have done this um, or did, did it this way. Or maybe you're going to see it going, oh, that's not the direction I want. Maybe you're going to try something different. I think um, including some kids, you know, for feedback, I think is always welcomed. Uh, one of the things I did in the library last year before we were sent to uh, remote learning was, I created an entire 
uh, Candyland board game on my double doors coming into the library using sticky notes. And then I took um, the pictures of our staff members and I put them on clothespins. <laughs> and then that's how kids moved around the board. And when they didn't have books, you know, if they had all their books put away and then there was always a secret activity that they could do, they'd have to pull out of a, a strip of paper. And, you know, it was just, it they had to do it anyway. They had to pick up, they had to straighten up their chairs, but knowing that they could go further on that board to get to, I don't even remember what the prize was. I don't know. Oh, it was a free book at our book fair. I mean, something super simple, you know, and something that not everybody wanted, but everybody was willing to work as a team to get to the end result. So start simple, start, yeah. you know, just try something. And I think that's one of the things that think um, people just need to know is just try something it's a different time right now and now is a good time to, to to switch it up a little couldn't agree more that's perfect <laughs> wrapping wrapping it up now is the time now if there's ever ever been a time to switch it up now is the time for sure yeah awesome well thank you that was um just well, it helped a solidify again for me, like what is gamification? Because again, you know, we throw terms out in education, and like you said, everybody probably has a little bit of a different definition. Um, but it helps just to kind of put it into context and think about that the easier things you could do in your classroom, and then how to even ramp that up as you get more and more comfortable and kids start to learn learn the process. Um, but yeah, hey, I like I agree with Kay at the beginning when she said, you know, we keep hearing we've even before COVID, we heard about student engagement and motivation. Um, COVID didn't create that issue. COVID just created it in a different modality. Um, so making sure that we find ways to um, effectively motivate kids and do so in a way that they find intriguing and interesting and still get at the content and skills that we want them to have, which Again, knowing those, those social studies standards, like I really want to go play this capital game now. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to go play it. A lot of fun. <laughs> Partly just because I'm not a Wisconsinite by, I'm, I'm a transplant, not a native. So I probably could learn a lot. So, so thank you for sharing. That was awesome. And um, I know at least if you're in Wisconsin, where can they find the, at least the, the Joe Wilder capital game currently? Yeah, so if you're in, well, you can find it anywhere um, in the world that has internet. But I think if you just search for uh, Joe Wilder in the Capitol case, you'll find it. Okay. Otherwise, uh, PBS Wisconsin has it on their site and BrainPop has it there too. Sweet. Is it really specific to Wisconsin's capital or would it work for any state just in because they all have capitals? Um, it is specific okay. to Wisconsin's capital. Um, but it would work, I mean, as an example of it would work anywhere you're at. And I think that's, that's one of the pieces with that, that I didn't mention is you could play, have the kids play that game and then look into your community. How can you work your community into that? And I think that was one of the big pieces when we, we came up with the end result of Joe Wilder is, you know, okay, here it is in Madison, but what if I'm not near Madison? can I still, you know, are there still those types of history pieces in your community? And I think that's what it kind of springboards you off into is really doing some community investigation and finding out how your history in your community is, is, is important. 
That's a great idea. Great example of, um, you know, taking something that is state or regional and then bringing it like, how could we do this uh, and make those community connections? Because um, in the activity that we did with Field Day and Joe Wilder, the game, um, we brought out some of the historians in the in the local community and boy, were they beyond excited to share the history of the community and the different locations and the different artifacts in those primary sources. So definitely, yeah, this definitely would give a um, head start into how can we make this something like this locally? Yeah. Love that idea. Awesome. Well, perfect. I think, you know, you kind of said it, if now's not the time, when is the time? So that was a great way to summarize. And we always like to give our listeners just new ideas or new ways of thinking about things. So this has definitely got me kind of even thinking about, cause I teach teachers and so like how, and you mentioned professional learning for teachers. So how can I incorporate some of this as, as I work with teachers too? So that's kind of, I'm my brain is kind of spinning right now. <laughs> Yeah. And, and finding people to follow. There's a lot of people out there specifically like on Twitter, hmm. um, you know, like Michael Matera or Jonathan Spike or even Alice Keeler are some, you know, three that come to mind right away that they're always posting something that's you know, useful. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. Use your PLN, use your, tw- use your Twitter. That was a terrible way of saying that. Use, use the Twitter. <laughs> use the Twitters. Use the Twitter. Well, I think we've officially done the Midwest goodbye because we like tried to wrap it up three times right now. (laughs) Officially the Midwest goodbye, right? Isn't that, isn't that true? I I think so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and we will, I mean, we always post like who, you know, when we put the episode out, your name will be on there. You, Mike is also on Twitter. So if you want to reach out to him, um, I would hope that he would be okay with that. (laughs) Hey, okay all right perfect so if you have any questions reach out otherwise thanks mike for um for having taken the time to talk with us today and good luck with the new game as you get it under construction awesome thank you for your time thank you mike all right well wow wow i think we all got a little bit of great nuggets here uh about uh, video game basis even my dog is very excited about (laughs) creating video games for dogs she says what about for dogs um it's so fitting that we did have mike on for this episode because it is national library week and actually it april is national school library month so be sure to all of our listeners Give um, your school librarian as well as your local public librarians a virtual hug or maybe one of those fun distanced elbow bumps. I tell you what, if you need a resource person, an instructional resource go to, it is your school librarian. So, So thanks to all of our librarians. And that got me down a, an April rabbit hole, so to speak. I suppose that could be punny being that Easter started off the month. Oh, I didn't even get that one. Good job. (laughs) I like it. That was totally unplanned. And that's why I love this. We're kind of casual and off script once in a while, but April has a lot of like, and I'm using air quotes months. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd like to highlight a few. It is mathematics awareness month. And I don't know about you stuff, but I could use some mathematics awareness. Do you Mm -hmm. think it has anything to do with tax day? Oh, I didn't even think about that. 
I, it just occurred to me that hmm, math, hmm, taxes, yikes. I don't know. Good question. Although taxes aren't due in April this year, but yes, it very well could. <laughs> that is true. So there's a reprieve. <laughs> um, for sure, it's National Humor Month. So let's all take a chance to, you know, I suppose April Fools mm-hmm. make it. If you're like some of our friends, uh, they make it last all month. Yeah. Um, we love it because Earth Day is also part of April and it's Keeping American Beautiful Month. I encourage anyone, we, we personally, we live in the sticks. So we go out and we adopt our own little county road and clean up whatever has been um, gifted to the earth and put it in, put it in plastic bags and we either recycle it or uh, take it to our local, our local um, dumpster place. But um, other fun things, if you Google April, national months uh-huh. that you, I think peanut butter came up in there. Too. Yeah. I think it was peanut butter and jelly day the other day. <laughs> April's just a fun mm-hmm. month. Um, it is one super important and national black women's history month. love that. And pets are wonderful month. I thought that was kind of yeah. for you and me yeah. or dogs. Well, but I do like your personal, podcast. I do like your personal favorite here. Yes. And my personal favorite national soft pretzel month, people go get your cheese and just drizzle to your heart's content. I'm I don't off- drizzle cheese on pretzels. There's no <laughs> drizzling. It's more like, I don't even know the word cascading. <laughs> I'm not sure the word dunking. I don't <laughs> I definitely dunk. Yes. I don't know. Those oh. are our illustrations. And you know what, if you're, if you're listening, you know, have your kids Google it. Oh yeah. Students Google it and then have them maybe, um, I I could turn this into a a somewhat of a writing assignment, you know, Google April is whatever month and pick one and then write an argumentative paper as to why it is the best. (laughs) April is national soft pretzel month. Why, (laughs) why is that the most important? Yeah, that's true. Why is that this month? (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing your time with us today and Mike, you know, listening to Mike and some of our musings about updates. Um, I do want to refer just briefly before we go today, just Mike had mentioned off mic, um, off microphone about just this article that Edutopia has out about um, gamification. So it's called how to use gameplay to enhance classroom learning. And if you just Google that, it'll pop right up. It's an Edutopia article. And it's just, again, as Edutopia always does, a good, succinct, um, easy to read, but really practical tips um, about how to bring this into your classroom. So on top of what Mike talked about today, that might be something you want to dig into or put in your little file of resources for summer learning or something like that. Absolutely. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback um, regarding topics or just anything about the podcast that you'd like to share with us. And you can connect with us. Yes, we do have an email. It is edu-chalk-talk, edu-chalk-talk at gmail.com. You can follow and join our Facebook group. It is called Chalk Talk. And you, you can find it. It looks like a uh, green chalkboard for those of us who have not been using white interactive boards our entire life um follow us on twitter we are at chalk talk 19 and follow us on instagram at edu chalk talk so until then keep reading and keep learning